Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We are now in week eight of our series, The Life of Jesus. And during this podcast, we will answer one of life's most important questions. Is Jesus truly the divine Son of God? Our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will answer this and many more important questions, as well as give helpful apologetical advice and resources. You can follow along with this message in Matthew 12, 25 through 37, and Mark 3, 20 through 30. You can also find the weekly message outline and resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. We return to our series, The Life of Jesus. You've been reading it, right? It's, it changes your view, doesn't it, as you come to know Jesus' personality more and you see more the, His methodical plan. So today we focus on the identity of Jesus. Each one of us must individually determine for himself and herself who is Jesus. Who is he to you? That's what matters. This is life's most important decision because it determines not only the nature of our lives on earth, but it controls completely our eternal destinies. Arthur Arthur C.S. Lewis wrote a book of apologetics. You know what apologetics means? An apology is an argument. And so apologetics are an argument in support of faith. And so he wrote an outstanding apologetics book called Mere Christianity. And in this book, which is based on a series of radio messages, Lewis proposed a trilemma. That's a bilemma, except it's three. A trilemma regarding the identity of Jesus. Since Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God, he could not, he cannot be regarded as a good moral teacher. So he leaves us with only three options, which we will consider today. Take out your outline. Take out your message guide, and the first two panels, of course, are your outline. And we're going to answer this question, who is Jesus? One option is that Jesus is a lunatic. And this was the assumption of Jesus' own family members. Okay, we're at reading 63. Beginning at Mark 3, verse 20. Now, Jesus had just appointed his 12 disciples. And it says, then he went into a house. Okay, this house is located in Capernaum. And it is likely the house of Peter and Andrew, the same house where the men lowered their friend through the roof after digging a hole through the roof. And it's a house that has today become the site of a church. There's a church that hovers over the top of this house. Jesus had healed Peter's mother. And then he healed the man who was, couldn't walk that was dropped through the roof. And so it became a great place, uh, a cornerstone of the faith. And as I said, there's a Catholic church that floats over the top of it today, almost like a spaceship sitting down on it. And the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able 
to eat. See, there were so many people crowding in on top of them. And there's so many people that, that were demanding Jesus' attention. Understand, these people got there by walking. And they had walked up to 100 miles away. And so they're coming in desperation, in urgency, in intensity. So imagine if you had journeyed that far. And they're just taking a break to eat. So the people are pressing in on Jesus. When his family heard, they just heard by word of mouth. It traveled from town to town. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. That's an unusual word, isn't it? And it's, it's an accurate translation. Because the word restrain is a Greek word, kratio, and it means to seize or hold. It's the same Greek word that is, speaks of the soldiers when they arrested Jesus at the Mount of Olives. So they, they came to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. Does that seem strange to you? His family is saying he's, he's, he's lost his mind. He's crazy. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration. Nope, that's an accurate translation too. The Greek word there is existima, and it means insane. In our vernacular, we would say that person's crazy. But not in a funny way, in a serious way. He's actually lost his mind. This is what they thought. So because of this desperate, insistent crowd that was pressing in, Jesus' family was concerned about his well-being and his safety. Now at this time, Jesus' family included his mother Mary. And Jesus has, you know how many brothers? Who knows? Four brothers. His brothers' names. You know, anybody know Jesus' brothers' names? Judas. There's a Judas. There's a James. I heard that over there. Joseph and Simon. You say, well, I didn't even know he had it. Oh, yeah, the Bible tells us. And did he have any sisters? At least two, because the word is plural. We don't, they're not named. But look at Mark 6, chapter 3. Now, it appears that Jesus' father, Joseph, has died. He isn't mentioned. In fact, he's not mentioned after what we consider, you know, kind of the Christmas passages where he went into Egypt and brought, that's the last time they moved back to, um, came back to Israel. That's the last time Joseph is ever mentioned. But it appears that his brothers were ready to rescue him, not only from the crowds, but even from himself by force if necessary. But does that raise a question? Do you wonder why would they think he lost his mind? You wonder that? See, I want y'all to get in this, get in this text. You got to stop reading over the top. See what I'm saying? Y'all are just sliding. If you just slide over the top of the scripture, you're missing it. This is a crazy statement that Jesus' brothers think he has lost his mind literally. And they traveled 30 miles on foot to restrain him. Now that feels a little different, doesn't it? What's going on? Why? Well, understand Jesus was a surprising, confusing, unique, but even peculiar child. Mary knew Jesus' miraculous origin. 
Luke chapter 1, 31 through 35, Gabriel appeared to her, told her she would become pregnant. But she also remembered that when he was 12 years old, they went to the temple for Passover, the first time he could go. And remember, they stayed during the Passover festival, and then they left, and he didn't go with them. He stayed behind for how many days? Three days. They realized he's not here, so they had to journey back. So they journeyed out a day and a half and came back a day and a half. But he stayed back to talk with the teachers, the rabbis. And the interesting thing is, he wasn't even apologetic. Look on the screen. And it's reading 19. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, have you ever not been where your mother told you to be? Come on, have you? Well, yes. And when she showed up and found you, how, what mood was she in? You see what, I'm, you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to destroy this spiritualizing. Oh, Mary, oh, my son. My mother never came looking for me like that. She'd say, what are you doing here? Why aren't you, why aren't you where you were supposed to? Did, come on, let's get honest, please. Whoever cut school? Well, of course I cut school. But I was smart about it. I would actually sign somebody's name on the excuse. I was more corrupt. I told you all that. But how many of you slick people that cut school got caught? Now, what mood was your mother in when she found where you were? Yes, that's what's going on here. He's not where he was supposed to be. He's back, and they're walking. So he must have been, if it took them, you know, at least 20 miles away. You could walk about 20 miles in a day. So imagine walking back that trip. So, son, why have you treated us like this? Have you ever heard that? How have you done this to your father and I? Come on, who's heard that? Yes, but get the feeling. How have you done this to us? We've been anxiously searching for you. You've made us crazy with worry, they'd say today. But look at his response. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So see, he had a higher authority. She didn't understand it. But they did not understand what he said to them. But from then on, he wasn't disrespectful. He didn't mistreat them. He went down with them. The reason it says down is because uh, Jerusalem is, is on a hill. It's much higher elevation than Nazareth. And came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. What does that mean, she kept these things in her heart? Who is this kid? He's not like any other child I have. Any of you raise a ch one strange child? <laughs> yes. And you're thinking, and you thought that. He's not like his sister. What? He's not like any other child. What, who have I been given? She was a human mother. Jesus was a human child. 
She felt this way. So she's thinking, I know he's miraculously given, but sometimes, like my mother would say, I want to wring his neck. Now, Jesus' brothers also knew that he sometimes made very blunt statements that offended people, that stirred them up, such as what he said to the residents of Nazareth, his hometown. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. But I want, I want you to look at this, this reading. Let me find out which, that, that location. Reading 36. Okay, he's in the synagogue. They've let him read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, it's Isaiah writing. It's a messianic prophecy. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? Particularly, now we go back to the screen, in light of this. They were all speaking well of him. And they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Untrained, largely uneducated, a peasant father and a peasant family. This is a skeptical question. What's he talking about? What's he saying to us? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Dr. Heal Yourself. So all we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. So he's saying, y'all are all going to say to me, okay, now heal some of us here. But he said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. There were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the prophet Elisha's time. There were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, again a Gentile. When they heard this, all who were in the synagogue were enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill over which their town was built, intending to hurl him over the cliff. You think they really wanted to kill him? What do y'all think? Yes. Because he's supposed to be, and even those that think maybe this is the Messiah, he's talking about helping Gentiles and not healing Jews. And it made them mad. Because what did they want from the Messiah? See, the family knew Jesus was special, but Jesus didn't work miracles as a child. 
There's a movie called The Young Messiah. It's really quite good. And that child works some miracles, but it's, it's not true. Because Jesus' first miracle was what? Turn water into wine. And he disappointed a lot of Baptists with that. <laughs> but his brothers clearly did not understand his identity. Again on the screen. This is later. This is, this is the last year of his uh, ministry, public ministry. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you were doing. So they knew he was working miracles. See? For anyone... For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So you get it? If you want a following, if you're going to lead an uprising, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to go where the people are. For his brothers, even his brothers, not even his brothers believed in him. They did not know him. They did not know his purposes. They knew he could perform miracles, but they were confused about his purpose. His mothers and sisters may have been as well. See, like these Jewish people, they may have thought Jesus was this expected Messiah King, not the Savior of the world. They wanted him actually to stop healing individual lives of insignificant people and step up and become the deliverer that we expect and want. They wanted this life improved. They weren't all that concerned about the next one. And they wanted him to come in the way they wanted him to come. Now, Jesus' brothers did come to believe in him, but not until after the, re the resurrection. You can find that in Acts 1.14. His brother James became the leader of one of the main churches. Which one, you know? The Jerusalem church. And by tradition, according to tradition, he was actually martyred by being thrown off the pinnacle of the temple where Jesus was taken to be tempted. His brother Judas which it, another form of Judas is Jude and James both wrote the books of the New Testament that bear their names. So the brothers all came to believe in him, but they didn't for most of his ministry. Well, none of his public ministry, they didn't believe until after his resurrection. Isn't that surprising? And they knew he worked miracles, but they did not know who he was or for what he'd come. They thought he was a lunatic. Here's my question. Do you think Jesus is a lunatic? Do you? Here's how you decide. Does he not fit into your desires and expectations of him? See, if you have a definition of Jesus that's about you, not him, you're treating him as a lunatic. See the difference? Do you want Jesus to do what he wants in your life? Or do you want him to do what you want in your life? 
Completely different. Some believe Jesus was a liar. We continue in reading 63. On page 80. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, remember I told you Jerusalem's at a higher elevation. Jerusalem's at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Capernaum, where Jesus was living, is at 700. And the scribes who had come down, the scribes were those who copied but also taught the Scripture, came down from Jerusalem and said, He has Beelzebul in him. Now, Beelzebul was meant... Baal the prince, and it was the chief Philistine god. You can see it in 2 Kings. So he'd been around hundreds of years earlier, you know, during uh, David's time. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, Beelzebul is not the name we're familiar with. What's the one we're familiar with? Beelzebub. Beelzebub was actually Jews making fun of Beelzebul. And Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, literally, and it was mockery. But now, hundreds of years later in the first century, both of those names came to mean Satan. Now, this particular accusation follows a dramatic healing, and it's found in 62. And in this healing, Jesus demonstrates authority over both the spiritual realm of demons and the physical realm of disease. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man both spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and said, perhaps this is the son of David, the Messiah. You see, David had been promised by God that, that his, his lineage would always sit on the throne. And so the Messiah would be David's descendant. When the Pharisees, and it says that in the footnotes, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, the man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So they had already said this once, and then they came to Capernaum, and they said it again. Why were they so upset? Well, they were enraged over this statement that Jesus was the Messiah. So they attempted to discredit him by attributing his power to Satan. They're slandering him. Isn't it interesting how in our culture today, if someone disagrees with an opinion, you get slandered with some name. That's the way these Pharisees were were operating. These scribes and Pharisees, you see, they had traveled more than 100 miles. Now, if you took a direct path from Jerusalem to Capernaum, it's, it's not quite 100 miles. But remember, they would avoid Samaria. So they would actually cross over the Jordan River and go up the eastern bank and then cross back over the Jordan River to Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee. So they would avoid all these unclean Samaritans. And think about it, though. They're walking. And the people are talking. And they're in close contact with all these just common people throughout the land of Israel. Imagine how many times they heard about the wonderful words and works of this man, Jesus. And what effect did it have on them? Now, don't raise your hand on this one. But is there anybody at work you really don't like? And how do you feel 
when someone comes up to you in the break room and really just starts in glowing terms bragging about this person and their work. It eats at you, doesn't it? And you want to say, that guy's not, he's not even doing the work. He's terrible. Well, that's how they felt every step because these were the religious leaders. So the people thought, well, they want to know about the Messiah. So let's tell him some good things we've heard about him. And it was just antagonizing these people. So they wanted to poison the people's attitude toward Jesus. Well, why were they so hateful toward him? Well, understand what he did. He, didn't, he never respected them or regarded them highly. He denounced them because they took God's law and the Ten Commandments, and then they added hundreds of their own interpretations. But then they judged whether people were righteous by whether the people kept their in- interpretations. It's like working on the Sabbath. The, the law about um, keep the Sabbath holy and, and don't work really was talking about your primary source of employment. It wasn't talking about do, don't do anything at all, but the Pharisees made it something ridiculous. In fact, I gave you an example of this before, but in Israel today as an application of the Sabbath law against work, there's an elevator in the hotels that you don't push any buttons on it. It stops on every floor to avoid work, the work that would mean pushing a button. That's today. So Jesus, you know, denounced all this man-made tradition and all this works righteousness. And so they wanted to shut him up. Jesus claimed to be God. There were no two ways around it. And so they either had to accept that Or do what they did, which was call him a liar and say, he's not from God, he's from Satan. And that's where his power comes from. So Jesus knew what they were thinking. And it continues. On 81, knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. You know, in our nation, isn't it? we're, We're split right down the middle, aren't we? And I mean, it's not a minor matter. It's, it's, people are in opposite corners. And it causes our nation to be unsteady, divided, dissension. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, the, the, the devil's demons don't fight each other. They fight God's people. They fight angels. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons drive them out? See, the Pharisees had some exorcists as well. And they used these kind of exotic rituals to drive out demons. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you say that I'm driving out demons by Satan. What about those guys that work for you? Are they empowered by Satan as well? And then he says, for this reason, they, their exorcists, will be your judges about what is the source of power? If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So he, he put them in a quandary again. He keeps frustrating them. He keeps embarrassing them. They don't know what to answer. How can someone enter a strong man's house, and the strong man represents Satan, and steal his possessions? His possessions are people who are demonically oppressed. Unless he first ties up the strong man, Then he can rob the house. So what he's saying is, I have the power from God to restrain Satan. 
Satan can't restrain Satan. Then he can rob his house. Forgiving sin, healing disease, casting out demons demonstrated Jesus' power over Satan, proving he is God. 1 John 3, 8. And then he continued. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral position regarding Christ. You could say, well, I'm not against him. I just don't know if I'm for him. Then you're against him. There is no neutral position regarding Christ. He said it very plainly, didn't he? You're either with Jesus or you're against him. And the fact that you don't articulate your position puts you in the anti-camp. You can't be neutral on this issue. Because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. Blasphemy is extreme sin. It's disrespecting and denouncing God. It's dishonoring God. And the Old Testament penalty was stoning. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You ever hear of that? The unforgivable sin? There's one unforgivable sin, and it's blasphemy of the Spirit. Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. Well, what does this mean? Well, it, well, in this case, see, they're attributing Satan's, I mean, the Spirit's work to Satan. Remember, Christ abdicated his own power, and so he performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these people are saying, you're not empowered by the Spirit, you're empowered by Satan. And he says, that's blasphemy of the Spirit. Does that frighten you or shock you to hear that there's an unforgivable sin? Does it? Or y'all already know this? Bobby, is it shocking to you? Well, tell that crowd around you. I'm going to keep y'all all day till y'all get active. Well, what does this mean? It means resisting, rejecting, disbelieving the Spirit's confirmation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God as the Savior of the world. See, we believe by the Spirit of God. You understand that? We're born again by the Spirit of God. We're convinced of truth by the Spirit of God. So you see, if we are unconvinced about Jesus, we are blaspheming the message of God's Spirit. And it's unforgivable if you die that way. Well, what if I've said something against the Spirit in my life? That's not what it's talking about. The only unforgivable sin is to die in unbelief, thereby blaspheming, denying, disputing the Holy Spirit's testimony about the identity of Jesus. Is that clear? How about y'all back there? Do you believe Jesus is a liar? Here's how we know. 
is what he says about himself true to you? Is what he says about you and your life, even your lifestyle, is that true? See the point? Are you today blaspheming the Holy Spirit through your resistance or through your unbelief? The third option is accepting Jesus as Lord. And this is the acknowledgement of Jesus' followers. We, we jump to re- reading 65 for this one. After leaving... After leaving, after leaving Nazareth, they walked 30 miles and they came to Capernaum. And so they wanted to, his mother probably just wanted to protect him, but his brothers wanted to apprehend him. And so they have now, they've walked all this distance and they've arrived in Capernaum. And so we start in reading 65, Matthew 12, verse 46. He was still speaking to the crowds when suddenly his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. But they could not meet with him because of the crowd. In other words, there were just too many people around him. They couldn't get to him is what that means. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But he replied to to the one who told him, who is my mother And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, looking at those who were seated in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that person is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus asserted that people who obeyed God's will were his family. Here's what another woman said uh, regarding his mother. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And he said, More blessed still are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, if we belong to Jesus, he is our Lord. You know, there's been this this statement about Jesus is your Savior and then make him your Lord, that that doesn't make any sense. His identity is one. He is Lord. The Greek word is kurios, and it means supreme in authority, master, controller, owner. So if he is your Lord, you're in relationship to him that is submissive. Do you understand? There's not another kind of relationship with Jesus than living in obedience to him. Romans 10, 9 talks about Jesus saying Jesus is Lord, but 1 Corinthians 12 says we can only say Jesus is Lord by the Spirit because the Spirit, when we're born again, puts us in relationship with the person of Jesus, and that person is Lord. You don't get to describe him as other than that. That's that's who he is. 
And so when we accept Jesus, we accept his identity. He is never merely a savior who forgives our sins. He becomes the ruler of our lives when we come into relationship with him. Does that make sense? And we become his followers. See, sometimes we have, we have mistakenly said, well, if you prayed this prayer, now you're in relationship with Christ. No, no, what is a relationship? That's like me saying, okay, I married Leanne and I said I do. That put me in relationship with her. It, it married me to her, but the relationship is ongoing. You see that? So if you did something, you prayed a prayer at, at the age of eight, but there was nothing, no relationship followed Nothing happened then. Because being born again is entering an re- ongoing relationship where you become the follower of Jesus. Look at this, John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. See, as we continue daily... Now, we ought to, you know what? We ought to be growing ever more intimate with Jesus. We ought to be knowing him better, understanding his truth more. And that's knowing the truth, which it really, this word in the Greek, know, is gnosis. It's actually experiencing. It's more than cognitive information. Because cognitive information doesn't really change you, right? You know God loves you fully, thinks you're wonderful. Why are you still so insecure, so fearful, so angry? You see what I'm saying? We can know a lot of things from the Bible cognitively, informationally, and it doesn't transform us. When we experience the truth of the Bible, what happens? What happens, Jane? Huh? You're changed, aren't you? And you even think differently. That's why we do transformation prayer. It isn't, I mean, it's hearing from God, but it just puts us in a place where we stop and we, we, we try to see what we're believing and listen to what God wants us to know. Because what happens as a result of experiencing God is you know the truth. And when you know the truth, what happens? It says it. Okay, so don't raise your hands, but how many of you aren't free? If you aren't free, you don't know the truth in some area of your life. Is that right? You're believing a lie in some area of your life. So here's a question. Is Jesus your Lord? And the way you know the answer to that is do you live in obedience to his word? So who is Jesus to you? Is he liar? Is he lunatic? Or is he Lord? Nowhere else to stand. You can discount him as delusional. Lunatic. You can denounce him as demonic liar or you declare him to be divine as the Lord of your life there really is no middle ground 
Who do you say Jesus is? You need to know the answer to that question. Counselors will be here. They'd be happy to discuss anything that I've taught today or anything on your mind. They'll be happy to pray with you. They'll anoint you with oil. If you uh, need healing in some area, there'll be people here be happy to minister to you. Father, we thank you for your word. By your spirit, show us ourselves so that we can see you truly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stack the chairs. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you experience transformed life. If you have questions about this week's message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. If you would like to peruse our archives or find helpful message resources, you can do all that and more on our website, brookwoodchurch.org forward slash messages. Also, check out our Brookwood Church app available on Google Play Store and the Apple iTunes. We thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.